Hello, welcome to Well Beings. It's Tyler White here. Today's episode is brought to you by Jackson White, Attorneys at Law, full service law firm in the state of Arizona, and by Birdie Scrubs, the most comfortable scrubs on the planet. And by the time you're listening to this, uh, the company will be live. So uh, check out Birdie Scrubs, www.birdiescrubs.com. Um, today's conversation is, uh, has been very insightful for me. I speak with Ashley Swinson. Uh, she's a master's of social work and a licensed clinical social worker in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, Ashley, uh, start, started a private practice called Tide, um, and it deals in mental health that offers trauma informed care and professional development services. Her areas of expertise include trauma and disassociation, traumatic grief, eating disorders, and secondary traumatic stress among professionals. Her specialty services include EMDR therapy for traumatic experiences, EMDR consultation for certification and candidates, professional consultation and workshops, and individual supervision for provisional licensure. Ashley and I have a great conversation today. Um, we talk about several themes that she's noticed throughout the pandemic, and each of these themes really resonate with me. Um, and, and of course, not only do we talk about these themes or these problems, we'll say, we also talk about the solutions to each of these problems. And so today's episode is really geared at wellness during the pandemic. And I think you're going to learn a lot and you don't want to miss this one. So please enjoy Ashley Swenson. Hello and welcome to Well Beings. Today we are very lucky to have Ashley Swenson from Wilmington, North Carolina. Ashley, how are you doing? You know, I'm okay. Um, I'm a little bummed out because today was supposed to be a snow day. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if y'all had snow, but we got an alert last night that there was a chance of snow. So my kids were on a two-hour delay this morning. Oh. Um, but we did not get snow. <laughs> no snow. Oh, that yeah. is a bummer. We did, we did not get snow here either in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Not a lot of snow. Here. <laughs> <laughs> there was snow in other parts of the state. Yes. Um, my parents were sending me pictures and I was super jealous because I would have loved a snow day. And yeah. then I started thinking about what do I want from a snow day? And it was the permission to to take time off um, <laughs> as if I need permission to do that. But a snow day seems like a good excuse. Yes, it does. It does. I, I took my family skiing over the weekend. And so we skied Friday and Saturday mm. and we were supposed to get snow Thursday and we didn't get any, and we didn't get any Friday. We didn't get any Saturday. And then we woke up Sunday morning to drive home and there was about eight inches of snow on the ground. So we got to drive in the snow, but there wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a lot of fresh snow for the skiing. No, yeah. not the same thing driving home in it. <laughs> no. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So you're a licensed clinical social worker. Uh, tell us about your practice, Ashley. I have a, a small group practice in Wilmington. It's myself and, um, two other associates and they're they're fairly new to my group um, over the past year year and a half and we specialize in treating PTSD oh. we're certified in a very specific type of therapy called EMDR 
and we work with all various presentations of trauma. Um, and so that's kind of the hallmark of what we do. And then on the side, I like to dabble in, in consulting. I work with a lot of new, new business startups for those interested in private practice in mental health, like what I'm doing. Okay. Um, and then I consult for um, supervision, you know, licensure um, for other social workers. And I consult for EMDR certification. I can supervise those who are on track to be certified in this therapy modality. Okay. Um, yeah. What I'm, I'm, I'm a little familiar with EMDR. Remind me what EMDR stands for. It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Okay. Um, I, I have, it, it's been described to me in a way that really made sense to me. Um, mm -hmm. but you're the professional. So mm -hmm. would you mind describing what EMDR is and how it works? Sure. Um, so uh, simply put, EMDR is teaching the brain how to learn again, um, mm -hmm. that when we en encounter adversity in our life, it can cause the brain to freeze, essentially, and inhibit the brain's ability to learn and adapt over time. And so EMDR is a, a brain um, therapy where the clinician is working with how a client reports symptoms and experiences in the therapy and tries to navigate um, the brain and where it's storing information, how it's storing information and get it to move and um, be reintegrated in an adaptive way so that when, you know, when a client is experiencing a negative past, present or future event, the held experience can shift from being negative and aversive to something more neutral or even positive. Okay. So when you talk about training the brain to learn again, um, that implies that the brain has kind of, well, it, it stopped learning. Um, and I, I'm sure that that's not true across the, the entire spectrum. I'm sure it's still learning in certain areas, but, but, it kind of sounds like something causes you to get stuck. Is, is that a, is that a fair explanation? Yeah, that's a great, a great way to think about it. Um, and we can get stuck in time. So parts of our brain kind of becomes fragmented and the age of us or the experience of us at that time in which that adverse thing happened, we get stuck there. And that part of the brain that that experience will not adapt and heal and learn in a productive way. So the information is maladaptively stored and EMDR helps that information to be moved into an appropriately and adaptive way. Hmm. Okay. What types of, what types of experiences can cause one to get stuck? Oh, well, the, the big word that most are familiar with is trauma, you know, a, a traumatic experience. And so things that are life-threatening, um, horrific, you know, scary, um, even, you know, witnessing violence or experiencing natural disasters, undergoing abuse. These are all kind of big traumatic experiences that, that we can go through. And then the newer research talks about, you know, little traumatic experiences, things that might not be so life-threatening, but they very much impact our emotional being and our emotional disposition 
and how the brain stores that information. And so really it's anything, the, the way I view um, traumatic stress or trauma for clients and for myself is anything that just feels awful, mm -hmm. feels awful to experience. It feels awful to think about, you know, that's the content that we really go after in the therapy. Okay. So there's this distinction then between the big T trauma and the little T trauma. Big T trauma are the events that most people would associate with trauma, um, violence, uh, things of that nature. Uh, but then the little T trauma is, is that like an accumulation of, of just kind of negative events that eventually, uh, create, create this, this, uh, this trauma and, and cause you to get stuck? Yeah, it can be, um, the accumulation of events. It can be really emotionally impactful events, like events that, um, trigger shame or humiliation or, um, guilt, even anger, you know, things that are, are super evocative to the brain and to the body's experience. So sometimes it's a, it's a single event. This one horrible thing happened to me. Um, like I felt humiliated in class when my teacher said this, or it can be the accumulation of my parent was just not there for me emotionally and, and relatively absent throughout my life. And, and that becomes, you know, a traumatic experience and how it gets stored in the brain. I see. Yeah. So, so parental neglect to use your example, I mean, one day of neglect, that's just mom or dad is busy, but day after day, then you start to feel mom or dad doesn't care about me. And, and that becomes a very negative experience, obviously, and, and leads to this little T trauma is, is the, is the effect the same for little T and big T trauma? Um, Oh, that's a great question. I would say yes and no. Um, it's the same in that it interferes with how the brain interprets the world, perceives information and makes sense of that information. So it's the function of that, the operation of that can be the same, um, but it may affect the, the brain's, um, so I don't want to get too technical, but the, like the amygdala, the hindbrain, where a lot of traumatic energy is stored, that part of the brain may or may not be hit in the same way, depending on the event that occurs. And mm. so uh, a lot of times what I'll do is educate my clients about how belief systems get stored related to these events. And this terrible thing happened to me. I felt awful and, and humiliated or ashamed in it. And therefore, it says this particular thing about about me as a person, like I'm bad or I'm wrong or I'm, I'm not good enough. And that, that core cognition, that's what becomes stuck in the brain. That becomes the basis of one's learning. And so as this person continues to engage their world, everything they see starts to be filtered through that lens of I'm bad. Oh, okay. And they assimilate new experiences in that way, whether or not those new experiences actually convey that meaning. Okay. So that's where you get stuck and how the brain stops learning. It stops adapting. It doesn't allow itself to heal, you know, and to invite in positive experience because the brain is stuck on that belief. You know, I'm, I'm a terrible person. Okay. And so EMDR uproots all that. We, we connect to it, we identify it, and then we uproot it and replace the language with something more neutral or more positive. Okay. 
Wow. Um, so with EMDR, um, let me let me just go back. That 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 what you what you just talked about sounds like such a uh, probably probably such a widespread problem. Um, we think of trauma as uh, a few people have, have suffered trauma, but but really it sounds like probably the vast majority of us have have suffered at least little t trauma. Um, and and when you see the world through that lens, so if so if the little t trauma is I'm not good enough then even when positive events happen, if, if you're, if you're operating from the stance of I'm not good enough, then it's, then, then everything is, oh, well, that was just lucky or, oh, that person was just having pity on me and nothing mm-hmm. can actually be what it really is because you're, you're contorting it to fit with what your belief system is. Yes, exactly. And EMDR can, can solve this. Mm-hmm. What happens? So, what happens with the uh, the eye movement? It's called it's eye movement. Uh, what's the DR stand for again? Desensitization and reprocessing. Okay. So, um, how does mm-hmm. the eye movement play into it? So, eye movement is the mode of bilateral stimulation that was originally studied in the research. Um, it has since generalized to other forms of bilateral stimulation, like tactile stimulation or auditory stimulation. Um, so the, what's so significantly different about other forms of therapy from EMDR is this mechanism of bilaterally stimulating the body, which impacts the way the brain is able to integrate this information that, that is coming up in the therapy. Okay. So you can sit and I even do this virtually with my clients. Now there's all kinds of tools that you can use to administer bilateral stimulation. But if you were with me in, in session in a, in an office, I would sit fairly close to you and I would have you track my fingers moving back and forth close to your face. You would just watch my hand pass back and forth, back and forth. And, and that your eyes moving back and forth, alternating in that way is bilateral stimulation of your body. And that bilaterally stimulates the right and left brain hemispheres in your frontal cortex. And so this shifts the way your brain is integrating or learning new information. Wow. So it's kind of like a reset. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. What's yeah. unique about that, though, is that, you know, when we talk about stressful things in, in our lives, if it's traumatically stored in the brain, that's going to activate the hind brain, you know, a different brain center. And so when that brain gets kicked in, it turns your prefrontal cortex off. So okay. you're not able to adapt or respond um, effectively. Okay. And the bilateral stimulation keeps all the brains turned on simultaneously. Okay. And your prefrontal frontal cortex that's like your executive decision that helps you make make your decisions and if that's offline and mm-hmm. your hindbrain is is running the show um anything could happen really right mm-hmm. yes right. anything reflexive um emotionally intense you know not reasonable not rational maybe not even verbal <laughs> right. so yes anything can happen 
anything could happen and, and it doesn't make sense, but it probably makes all the sense in the world to the person experiencing it because that's the lens through which they're viewing the world. So yes. that's their reality. Um, I, I had, I had Diane Snyder Cowan on not too long ago and, and we talked about trauma and, and she talked about, uh, the loss of the assumptive world and the assumptive world being the, the kind of the daily routine that we all just take for granted that we all know is, is going to happen. And, and with the pandemic, um, that assumptive world has, has kind of vanished. We, we don't know what to expect from day to day, um, with, with the landscape changing so dramatically and so rapidly. Um, and so we're all kind of, all of humanity, really globally, we've lost this assumptive world and, and that in, in turn leads to this little T trauma. Uh, and so, it, it might be uh, a safe assumption to say that trauma is more widespread now than ever before. Yes. Yeah. And collectively experienced. Yeah. And one would think that, you know, being that sharing this with all of humanity, having this collective experience would uh, perhaps diminish the traumatic effect, knowing that, hey, we're all in this together, but that, that's not, that's not how it's shaking out, it seems. Yeah, yeah. I think it would have to be, individually, we would have to set an intention to do that, to tap into the collective resilience mm -hmm. of that experience rather than the trauma of it. Wow. So you've done, you did something interesting uh, when the pandemic struck. Um, I, I read an article that you wrote on LinkedIn and... Um, and, and, and you began tracking themes that you noticed emerging uh, within your clients and colleagues and friends and even yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and you noticed, you noticed some common trends and, and uh, the article, I kind of like how you, um, you were writing these trends on your, on your mirror with a dry erase marker. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a good idea. Um, but, <laughs> but you spotted a handful of stages and then you came up with some practices to help with each of these stages. And I'd, I'd love to talk about these common themes and then address what people can do to help themselves deal with these themes that, that you've spotted. Um, because I, I, I certainly, as I read them, as I went down the list, I said, yep, 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 this, this all resonates. I, I, can, mm -hmm. I can relate to all of these things. Mm -hmm. um, so so this, this concept or this, these, this set of themes, uh, it's something that you refer to as uh, self-sustainability in, in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the first theme is my body hurts. Uh, can you speak to this? Um, what, what is causing pain? I mean, outside COVID-19 itself, uh, what is, what is causing pain? So, um, for me, my body began to ache when I had to abruptly shift into a new context to do the work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. I noticed this. Um, with the, the transition into telehealth and virtually connecting with clients. Um, and I heard that echoed that people in my field and then others just around me felt achy, felt sick, you know, and uncomfortable in their skin. Mm -hmm. And I think much like Diane was telling you, you know, 
the loss of the assumptive world, it, there was no t transition. It wasn't a gradual shift. It was an immediate pivot yeah. into something foreign and unfamiliar. And, you know, you, ma if, uh, you imagine that the physiology and the energy of your body is wired to move you every day in a particular direction. And then all of a sudden you have to shift it. Your, your physiology, your muscles are not wired and developed for that. And so it stretches you and it hurts. It physically hurts. Yeah. So it's more than just a psychosomatic thing. It's, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's actual pain from the deviation from your typical routine. Mm -hmm. and, and thinking back, I, I've noticed that myself. I've, I've had several COVID tests and all of which have been, have been negative. Um, but all of them were because I noticed my body ached and I thought, Oh, this is a COVID symptom. <laughs> when, when in fact it, it, um, now you've kind of explained it and, um, that, that makes sense. So we've identified a problem here or, or at least a, a, an issue. What is, what is the solution to this problem? My, um, the, the diagram says invite awareness, you know, so part of the initial step in this, this entire cycle is, is pausing and considering or pausing and recognizing. You want to invite the experience of self-awareness, self-reflection, self-evaluation so that you can sense what could be going on that needs to be fixed or needs to be alleviated or needs to be moved. Mm -hmm. and, and then you give yourself permission to do that, but without pausing and being still and, and knowing that's not going to happen. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's very much a mindfulness practice, would you say? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and just to, just to maybe elaborate on that a little bit, um, pause, be aware, and then, um, maybe not reject the fact that your body hurts. I think that my, at least my initial tendency is to push away bad experiences and push away mm -hmm. pain, um, whether that be emotional or physical and, um, and, and try to divert my attention somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I, I, I'm learning, I'm, I'm trying uh, to practice this awareness and rather than reject the pain, just kind of sit with it and see what it has to tell me. Um, yes. Do you say that? I like a, how you said that. See what it has to tell me. That's often a question I pose for myself and for my clients. You know, what is my body or what is my pain telling me in this moment? You give it a voice. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just sitting with it, and, and I've found that that sitting with it and listening to it, kind of uh, caring for it, um, it, it almost disempowers it. It diminishes whatever that negative experience is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a um, a skill, a concept in in my field called emotional agility. And a lot of our somatic experiences are fueled or somewhat influenced by emotions. And if we 
identify them and name them and express them, it, it can, it can diminish the discomfort of it because we've, we've self-validated and we've regulated and, and been affirming to give ourselves permission to feel it and vocalize that. Yeah. At risk of sounding like a fragmented, uh, schizophrenic, uh, I, I, I have in my mind when I, when I experience, um, anything unpleasant, um, if I'm, if I'm on my game, I can, I can kind of uh, talk to that part of myself and take care of that part of myself. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, he's a, a Vietnamese monk. He, he talks about caring for your anger or caring for your pain as if it's a baby and, mm -hmm. and just kind of cradling it and, and taking care of it as opposed to rejecting it. Mm -hmm. And, um, as woo woo as that sounds, it works for me for whatever. I love that. Works. I love all kinds of woo woo. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I kind of, I, I live in the world of woo woo. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have, I have to, uh, I have to be analytical for, for my job and everything like that. But, um, I, I like woo-woo. I'm okay with it. <laughs> um, the second theme you noticed is I'm exhausted. And mm -hmm. so many of these themes are kind of counterintuitive. It's like we have so much downtime. Mm -hmm. um, why is it that exhaustion is emerging as a common theme? Yeah. And what's interesting about exhaustion is that is one that probably stood out most consistently even to, so I wrote this in August, um, but the fatigue, the heaviness, the exhaustion remained pretty constant and, and more so really showed up as we entered the new year. And I think what it really demonstrates is how hard we all have been working to hold on, to sustain, to get there wherever that's going to be when this pandemic is over, if ever, you know, I mean, we really are working so hard wearing many different hats, mm -hmm. trying to show up and, and to show up well. Um, because when we are under this kind of stress, you know, stress that's restrictive, it feels oppressive, it's scary. We are prone to reflexive action, which would be all of those maladaptive things. You know, those real negative belief systems start to surface and those desires towards numbing mechanisms or avoidance mechanisms come up. You know, I've seen lots of relapse and addiction and eating disorders and harmful behaviors. And, and so to ward off or to redirect that energy, it is taxing yeah. on the system. Yeah. So there's significant fatigue and on, on many layers, you know, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual relational. I mean, the, the fatigue is pressing. Yeah. You raise quite a conundrum too with relapse into, um, you know, what into addiction, whatever that addiction might be, you know, ranging from the most destructive, you know, heroin addiction mm -hmm. all the way down to, um, you know, eating or maybe scrolling too much on Instagram or whatever mm -hmm. the case might be. Um, so, so we have, there's on the one hand, if we, if we're warding that off, we're exhausted. And on the other hand, if we give in, then we're in another kind of trouble, mm -hmm. um, depending on, on our, our addiction of choice. It could be, it could be a lot of trouble or it could be a little bit of trouble, but, 
Um, mm-hmm. it, we're, we're, we're just in a conundrum. So yeah. how, how do we deal with this exhaustion then? Well, I heard a, a great um, training recently. I attended the, uh, an international trauma training online and there was a speaker and I'm going to booger up her last name. Her name is Jazz. She's a, a known trainer, coach, um, worldwide speaker. But she talked about um, choosing your hard. That was her kind of tagline. Choose your hard. Either okay. direction is going to be hard. So which one are you going to go after? And I think that really speaks to you know what you're saying here. That if I choose the the road of numbing and avoidance, and I I regress into my addiction, that's going to be hard. And there's going to be a lot of work to overcome that or come out of that. But if I choose the path towards coping, which may feel very new and unfamiliar and uncomfortable, that's going to be hard too. So what outcome do you really want to experience from that choice? That's a, that is a great, great framework. Choose your heart. It sounds like something that Bernie Brown would say. It's a, mm-hmm. it sounds like one of her, one of her taglines, but I, I do, I really like that. Um, so, so we choose our heart and let's say that we choose, uh, the high road, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. uh, we, we uh, attempt to abstain from uh, numbing and addictions and everything. Um, and we have this exhaustion. Do you have any suggestions for coping with this exhaustion? Yeah, I, um, I, I say this a lot to myself and um, to many of the clients that I work with. And the, the primary population that I do see in my practice are other professionals, a lot of therapists, other healthcare workers. And we get caught up in, in this rat race, this frenzied energy mm-hmm. for a multitude of reasons. Um, and I find myself often saying, pace yourself, you know, slow down, slow it down. Even if you think you're moving slow, find other ways to slow down and really explore how you rest. You know, what is it that you're actually doing to rest and restore yourself? Because many times we think plopping on the couch, turning on Netflix and watching eight hours of a show, while that seems restful and enjoyable, you might be avoiding and numbing and distracting yourself without actually charging your battery. Mm. I and see. this becomes a really individualized process, you know, and, and experience because what works for me may not work for you or for the other person. I see. So in, in, in one instance, uh, the cure for exhaustion might be exercise, something that you would mm-hmm. think would lead to exhaustion. And in another instance, maybe the cure for exhaustion is that Netflix. It mm-hmm. you know, just depends on the person. Mm-hmm. Um, w- when the pandemic first struck, there is a lot of concern as, as an employer. Okay, everybody's going to be working from home. Productivity is going to go down. Everybody's going to, um, you know, get, be distracted with, with their life responsibilities and their home responsibilities, and they're not going to be productive at work. But what we're finding, uh, and when I say we, um, what studies are finding is that people are working more through this pandemic than ever before uh, without the without the strictures of the nine to five and the weekends. People are just working 
straight through lunch. Um, they're, they're working on the weekends. They're thinking, well, I, I have nothing else to do. I might as well work. Um, and, and I suspect that this plays into the exhaustion. It's exactly what you're talking about, kind of getting caught up in this frenzied rat race. Um, and, and so, and so now, um, what the concern was, you know, loss of productivity, it, it's kind of flipped. And now the concern is how do we prevent burnout? Because people are working too much. Um, I suspect that for, for many, uh, working might be a numbing mechanism or an avoidance mechanism. Um, but I think that it's really important for all of us to, uh, regardless of where we're working from during this weird time, uh, to build in breaks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, do you have any suggestions for, for, for people on, on how they might, build breaks into their into their days when when work bleeds into into home and vice versa yes i that's a great question um and again super individualized to each person that's considering what their time management needs to be what the bounds around their schedule should look like the breaks that serve them well how long that break is but in general um I think first and foremost, there needs to be a distinction of work and home, even when you work from home. Um, so like for me, I have a set schedule where I, you know, set up appointments with my clients several days a week. I could, because it would be easy to say yes to this, I could open up more appointments during the week because I'm home, my kids are in school. Um, I've got space to do it and there's clients that, that need to schedule. So I could say yes, a lot more than I do, but I don't, I'm very fixed to the schedule that I allow myself to see clients because I know that stepping outside of the bounds of that time is dangerous to my own sustainability in the field. Mm. So first and foremost, set your schedule and stick to it. You know, even when you feel compelled to, to stretch beyond that, don't. Just let yourself stick to that work schedule. And then when you shift, whether it's into a break or closing out your day, come up with your ritual for that, Doing kind of doing the same thing every time you transition. So if you're transitioning from work into a break, allowing it to look the same, to program your brain into the rhythm of it. At the end of my day, and I especially had to do this as I abrupt shifted into telehealth and I was doing it out of my bedroom, um, which just I had lots of mixed feelings about, but we didn't have any other space in the house for me to to do that work. I had to come up with my ritual in closing down work and not bringing the energy of that work into my house, into my engagement with my kiddos, my Mm -hmm. husband. Mm -hmm. And so we would, I would come out of session, close down my computer and I would spend 10, 15, sometimes 30 minutes either with another person. I call a friend or I would meditate or I'd read something to kind of reset the focus of my thoughts before I actually exited my quote unquote office and then went into engaging with my family. And then when I stepped into that space with my family, we would open the windows in the house. We'd open our doors to our patio and we would turn on music really loud just to cleanse. It felt like I was cleansing the energy of my home and resetting myself and setting the stage for the evening with my family. 
And every day we did this. I love it. It sounds mm-hmm. like what you created is a virtual commute of sorts. We all mm-hmm. have, I mean, my commute now is 25 minutes uh, to and from work. And mm-hmm. um, there are days when I wish it were longer because mm-hmm. that time in my car, I could I can make phone calls uh, that aren't work-related. I can listen to audiobooks, podcasts, mm-hmm. or just sit in silence or listen to music. I have that time to transition into work Tyler and then transition back to home Tyler. Um, again at risk of sounding like a fragmented person, but (laughs) (laughs) we wear many hats. No, I think that's great. And I, I agree. That's exactly what that was. It was my virtual transition ritual. Yep. I love it. Um, thank you for that. So the third theme is I feel so alone and, uh, I, I kind of, I talked, I touched on this earlier, but, but this is the first time in my lifetime and, and probably in anybody's lifetime for, that's on the planet now, uh, where, where the global community has endured such a common problem. Um, and, and so why doesn't this unite us more? Why, why do, why are we feeling so alone when we're all experiencing such a common malady? Yeah. Uh, you know, stress and um, particularly traumatic stress, and, and this, for myself, this thought was spawned from me losing a client um, earlier in the pandemic. And it's when you experience negative affect in that way, it's isolating. You know, we feel these intense, indescribable emotions sometimes, and they they cause us to lose our breath and we retreat. We just naturally shrink into ourselves to protect ourselves or to hide or to avoid. And the challenge, you know, our brains and our bodies are designed to heal from connection with others. It's, it's quite remarkable how the brain, the physiology of the brain can shift from physical contact or verbal contact with another person and help move that that emotional stress that's trying to get stuck and filed in an improper way, that connection with someone else helps move that in an adaptive way. And mm-hmm. so we, we have to be responsible with whatever thing this is that's causing us to want to retreat and pull away, withdraw. We've got to know that that's what's happening when it's happening and then fight that reflex, you know, actually lean out, lean in to connecting with someone else to help our brains adapt to heal, to recover, whatever words you want to put there, but to move forward in the present rather than retreating and then it becoming a stuck point in your past. Well, it's so powerful. The the beauty and power of just relationship is, is inarticulable. Um, it, it, as you were talking, it, it kind of sounds like all of this is... Um, it's kind of in our DNA. I mean, a million years ago on, on the Savannah or whatever, uh, you know, there were real stressors. There were saber toothed tigers and, 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 and famine. And, and so, so when, when faced with stress to survive as a species, we had to retreat, you know, Mm -hmm. I had to withdraw. But now um, we're not living on the savannah. We're we're living where, with a click of a button, you can have anything you want at your house in less than an hour. 
and 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 so this stress response um, we haven't quite yet evolved out of it. Everything is, our world has changed so rapidly and we haven't had time to evolve out of this, mm-hmm. um, this response that's no longer serving a purpose. Um, and uh, so those are just th- the thoughts that popped into my mind as you were mm-hmm. talking about this. And, and I don't know, I don't know what the research says about human connection. I don't know why it works. I just know that it works. I I know Hmm. that, um, just that, just, just the authentic dialogue between two people has a very, uh, calming and, uh, just a healing effect. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. The research, um, more the more recent research that I really like to geek out about is Stephen Porges's work on the vagus nerve, and it's called the polyvagal theory, and it talks about how there is that our nervous system, particularly this nerve, this vagus nerve, stems from our brain all the way to our gut, and this nerve is highly sensitive to social interaction and mm. stress. So when we encounter stress, this nerve reacts. And it sends signals to our face and throat and then sends a signal to our chest and then sends a signal to our gut. Well, when we are under life-threatening stress, that those signals happen you know, instantaneously. And when the signal hits our gut, our system shuts down. It, it becomes immobilized. And in reptiles, you know, this works really well because they play dead when they're under (laughs) a life-threatening stress. Their body collapses and they shut down and and their predator thinks they're dead and doesn't come at them. And for us, that could work for survival. But when we're not really in a situation that warrants life-threatening survival, like those, you know, experiences you were describing from years, many years ago, what we actually need is that vagus nerve to just activate our face and our throat so that we can connect non-verbally and verbally with someone else and keep the distress, the nervous system distress there so that it is expressed and emoted outwardly shared with someone else and not triggering this chain of events throughout the rest of our body. Let me see. So, I mean, the, so the solution to feeling alone is really connecting with others Connection. yeah mm-hmm. and it's well, it's a, it's just one of those horrible p- paradoxes of life it's like when you're feeling alone the obvious answer is well go connect with somebody but that feeling of isolation makes you want to further withdraw it's mm-hmm. it's like uh, it's like our 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 body works against us sometimes mm-hmm. yeah we can get quite comfortable in that isolation too Uh, especially introverts. And I've heard um, many friends and clients say over the past couple months, you know, I've gotten quite comfortable and not seeing people. And I just don't know what it's going to feel like to have to emerge out of this cocoon when this (laughs) is back to normal. Um, And I really, I'm curious, I've not done any, any digging on this, but I want to see what, what people are going to write about and and talk about with regards to reentry. You know, how is it going to be for people to to get back out again? And are they going to or is it going to look different this time? Yeah, it will be interesting to see. Uh, there's 
I mean, this, this pandemic is, is in many ways, probably a researcher's dream. I mean, Mm -hmm. how could you ever create such a vast human experience and experiment with such a large sample size, but it will be fascinating to see how, how we, uh, re-engage, um, I'm very introverted, and so it's mm-hmm. it, it's very easy for me to to not talk to people, mm-hmm. um, and and I know when it's gone. I, I can tell when it's been too long. I I, I, I feel, and I feel that sense of isolation, um, and the and the worse that it feels, the harder it is to connect with other people. And as soon yeah. as I talk to people, I'm, I, I, just, I, I do love people. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll even tell people that. And they're like, wait, you said I love you? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I really do. Uh, but I, um, but uh, it's, it, I know uh, objectively and intellectually that talking with somebody and connecting with somebody is, gonna, is going to elevate my mood. Yet mm-hmm. it's so easy to stay withdrawn um, mm-hmm. for me as, as an introverted person. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so the fourth theme, um, th- and this kind of plays. This is this kind of plays into the I feel so alone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's get away from me. Well, I'm feeling alone, and I'm pushing people away from me. And mm-hmm. again, this seems kind of counterintuitive. Um, people, you know, seem starved for human interaction, uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, with quarantines in place and, and, you know, all, all venues closed and gatherings have been minimized. Uh, why then are we pushing people away? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so this piggybacked on that loneliness experience, or I feel so alone when you stay stay in that isolated, withdrawn place, you really start to write stories in your head about that and convince yourself, oh, I just don't, I don't need to be around people. I'd rather be stuck in all my ick and yuckiness and then pushing. Just, I don't want it. I don't, I don't want anybody in this space. It's too hard. It's too much work. I don't like what anybody has to say. So just stay away. For me, particularly, you know, this this culminated after this hardship with my client experience, and I felt incredibly smothered by, you know, having my husband and my kids and my dog in my house. I mean, I just wanted everybody out, and I wanted to leave, and I didn't care where it was going to be, and I didn't know when I would be back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all I could think was just get away. Um, and in sharing that, it was so sweet. My oldest son who's eight, he, he and I spend a lot of our times connecting in the mornings. We're both early risers. And so I was in the bathroom getting ready one morning and he saw all my notes and I scribble on the mirror and was asking me questions about, about it. And I could share very openly, you know, this is what's, what my experience has been like with the pandemic and thoughts that have been in my head. And I'm at this place where I just want everybody to leave me alone. And he was like, yeah, mom. He said, what are you going to do? Like how, what's the cure for that? Cause I was explaining to him the anecdotes to these things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, buddy, I don't know. I just, I just know I don't want anybody near me and I, I want to take a break. And he said, you know, mom, I think what you really need is to ask for help. <laughs> and I was stunned because he was so right. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't asked for help for months 
you know, I thought we got this, we can do this, you know, this family of four, we got this figured out and I so needed help <laughs> desperately. Yeah. So it was great. The, the wisdom of my right. seven year old <laughs> from the mouth of babes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. It, again, it, it, it seems like such an obvious answer and the mm-hmm. answers are so very often very, very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but simple and, and easy aren't the same things. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's, it's another one of those things where the, the, fur, the further you let it go, the harder it is to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And I can relate to that. I can, I, I uh, you know, when, when the pandemic first struck, there was, uh, it seemed like every conversation um, ended or started or was entirely about complain complaining about the pandemic you know mm-hmm. uh, and i i i decided that i wasn't going to complain about it it's just the, that's mm-hmm. the it's the way it was and i'm 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 okay um i have no right to complain everybody's there are people that are worse off than me at least i'm healthy mm-hmm. and um the fact of the matter was that i too needed help uh, mm-hmm. we all needed help and and maybe just being a little bit more vulnerable and 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 framing it in that way um, would have been a very uh, it would have been much more skillful than acting like the hero you know yeah. uh, the stalwart guy who has it all together. Absolutely, I think we um, we're very judgmental and about what help is and help in and of itself is is kind of a stigma as if it says something about you negatively. Um, like if I ask, therefore I can't do on my own or I'm failing on my own. And that's, that's not what that means at all. Um, and that's why we have the beauty of relationships and resources in our life, because there are greater things we can do together than on our own and, and help for me would look different, you know, than help for you. And I remember, um, even just acknowledging out loud to my husband at that time, like, babe, I'm real, really struggling. And I need some things to shift and we could problem solve around that. And we did in fact make, you know, a cautious decision at that time that we were going to create our little pandemic bubble with um, a close set of friends. And we, you know, quarantined and prepared for it and then started to see them um, and touch them. And I'm, I'm a one who craves physical contact with others. And, and we did that safely and remarkably have not gotten COVID throughout this entire experience, but it was, you know, it was necessary for us. And that's, that's how we manage that. That's wonderful. The, the, the fifth theme, I'm so over it. Those are four words that I have heard um, Mm -hmm. more times than any other words over the last year. I'm so over it. Mm -hmm. And and rightfully so. Uh, I mean, this seems obvious, obvious enough. Uh, who, who wants to live in this suboptimal condition? Uh, I have yet to meet anybody who says, Hey, uh, I want more COVID. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what can we do about this? I mean, uh, how, what, what do we need to shift our attitude? What's the, what is the solvent here? Um, no, I don't think we need to shift our attitude. I think you can be so over it and you can do something else. You know, it's, it's not a, Yes, but it's a yes and. Um, and, you know, it's interesting at, at this time that I wrote this article, I, I put choose joy 
as the, the option here. And I think I would change that now because joy has been harder to reach, harder to create and to feel as the pandemic has prolonged. And so what I might actually say there is, is set your intention or be intentional. Um, you have, you do have a choice. And so in moments where you are exasperated and over it, where do you want to intentionally direct your energy? Because that choice matters that, that you have an opportunity to create positive or neutral experiences for yourself amidst all the chaos. Mm-hmm. And that's your responsibility. Mm-hmm. Setting intentions. Um, you, you've said a couple of things that, um, that relate to uh, Vipassana practice or mindfulness practice. Are, are, you, a, are you a meditator? I, um, it, I guess it depends on what you consider meditation. Do I like to meditate on music? Yes, but it'll probably result in me screaming very loudly or dancing around the room. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yes, I have embarrassed my kids more times than I, than anybody can count by doing that. So that's your that's your meditation uh, practice. Yeah, I usually meditate on music. It's it's harder for me to practice um, meditation in, with quiet stillness. So there's or it, it'll be guided. I like things that are guided to keep me focused. Yeah, yeah, guided meditations are great. Mm-hmm. I use them with my kids, and they they seem to get a lot out of them. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. In fact, on this ski trip that uh, I talked about, um, we went with another family and and my kids are accustomed to doing a guided meditation before before bed. And we had other kids there with us, you know, the other family, and, and they they're not accustomed to that. But mm-hmm. my daughters can't go to sleep without it. And so mm-hmm. I, we, I played a guided meditation and it was the other kids. It was their first experience with meditation. And um, the, the particular guided meditation was the, the meditation teacher. He's a renowned teacher, but has a very dry voice. And, you know, it was, it's kind of like what you would think about, like, uh, like the stereotypical new age guided meditation type of a thing. So I was a little uncomfortable, uh, wondering, you know, wondering what these kids are thinking about uh, what's happening. And afterwards, the, the five-year-old girl, uh, the friend of our, of our family, she said, I really needed that. She's like, and I don't know what I don't know how she made all these connections, but she said, sometimes I'm so critical of my of of how I dress and I mean towards other mm-hmm. girls about how they dress. And this meditation really made me made me become aware of that. And wow. I, thought, I thought, wow, how powerful, you know, mm-hmm. 10 minutes of uh, guided meditation could could impact this sweet little girl. Mm-hmm. Um if only we could, if only we could teach kids these skills earlier. I mean, math yeah. important, reading important, but what about all these these actual emotional skills? I, I, there's got to be. Uh, I mean, curriculums need to change. I know that some are, but it, it would sure would be nice to have some training in this i i sure would have liked it as a kid it probably would have saved me some troubled years (laughs) yes oh i completely agree and i 
I have felt, you know, for as hard as our, our educators have been working through the pandemic, I know there was a lot of talk of um, a shift into social emotional learning for them, for students, you know, as they continued remote learning. And I've seen some of it, but I would have loved to have seen more of it. And it could be that the curriculums just aren't there yet. Um, but I, I completely agree with you. It would be great to build more of that into the schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the sixth th- theme uh, that you've identified, uh, you've, you've called it, I don't want to do this, but I can do this. Can you elaborate on what this means? Yeah. So what, in addition to the I'm so over it, it would then be followed with, I don't want to do this anymore, um, but I can do it. You know, that, that there was this moment of awareness and hopefulness that look at me, I'm six months into the pandemic. And as much as I don't want to, or I think I can't, I am doing it. And so it was this resistance, this, the simultaneous resistance and acceptance. And Mm -hmm. I think the recognition that in the present moment, you are doing that, which you don't think you can, or that, which you don't think you're capable. um, There's a lot of adaptability, a lot of resilience showing up in that moment that you can, you could certainly stay stuck in resistance and let that fester and heels in the mud, or you can really acknowledge the resiliency quality, the drive, the ambition that's showing up for you and serving you well. I mean, cause we're almost a year in <laughs> Yeah. and look at us, look at, look at how, I mean, humans have been um, both heinous and miraculous this year. I mean, I've been quite um, intrigued by the, the extremes of that. And, um, but I like to err on the, the, the intrigue and just the wow, the awe that I'm seeing in, in the people that I know and care about and serve. Yeah, there is uh, a very dichotomous polarity. There's, it's bringing out the best and the worst in people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, for, for a good reason, I suppose. Um, and you, and you raised such a good point. It's <laughs> every day that goes by is another piece of evidence that, Hey, I can do this mm-hmm. as much as I say, I can't do it anymore. Well, I'm doing it. And, mm-hmm. and I'm alive. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we have, humans have this, this wonderful ability to habituate um, and, and, uh, and, and, and acc- I guess acclimate is, is a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, acclimate would be the positive thing. Um, and, and maybe habituate would be, uh, the, the, I don't want to say negative, but maybe the default thing. And what, and what I'm getting at here is there's, there, there's been studies that talk about, uh, this happiness set point, And I'm sure you're familiar with mm-hmm. this, uh, all the positive psychology research that's, that's coming out now. Mm-hmm. And there, there is one study that, that talks about, uh, that, that studied uh, w- lottery winners and uh, quadriplegics, folks who had been in accidents and, and lost uh, the use of their limbs. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they, they studied their, their happiness set point um, prior to the event, whether it was tragic or uh, wonderful. 
And then two years later, uh, after the uh, after the, after the person had become accustomed to the new way of life, whether it be better or worse, objectively, their happiness set point had kind of habituated back to where it was prior to the event. And so mm-hmm. um, these extraneous events uh, d- don't really make us happier or mm-hmm. uh, or or worse off um, in the long run. Sure, you know, the day you win the lottery, you're probably going to be through the roof. And <laughs> and the day you break your neck, um, having having broken my neck, and but, but I can say this, uh, mm. you're down in the cellar. Uh, yeah. But but then you, you then you kind of go back to that happiness set point. Do you know why this is? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't expect you to know the answer. I just, okay. uh, you just seem smarter than I do. So I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Tyler. <laughs> um, what, what comes to mind is the, the theory of homeostasis. Um, and I can see, you know, happy, happiness set point being similar to us wanting to acclimate into or habituate into homeostasis. You know, what is our status quo? Okay. And oftentimes when we, when that status quo has been set at an earlier stage in our life and, and, and maintains at that, that stage, our, our body's physiological wirings are adapted to that status quo. I see. And even when we encounter big change, it, it, our physiological system may not change in response to that. It could be, you know, something brief, mm-hmm. but it may not hardwire to our system. I wonder, and I'm just connecting some dots here, um, but I wonder if this happiness set point has something to do with the traumatic events that, that we've stored up. If we get <laughs> stuck and we're viewing the world through our stuck lens, then um, uh, of course an extraneous event isn't going Mm -hmm. to, isn't going to raise or lower the, our, our emotional well being in the long term. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Yeah. So um, the good news is, uh, that happiness set point can be changed and probably uh, the 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 best way to do that and and maybe you can uh, elaborate on this but is through gra- uh, gratitude practices that's that's what the that's what the studies show is by um you know gratitude lists or having gratitude partners where you share what you're grateful for Mm-hmm. Uh, um, recognizing the good in your life can actually raise that happiness set point. Actually, raise the the your physio your physiological uh, well being. Yeah, yeah. That's I think that's a great a great option. And I know many who keep gratitude journals. You know, like a daily practice of setting their intention and focusing on things, allowing themselves to write write those things down, speak them aloud because your brain perceives that information differently in the way it, it, it takes it in, whether it's thought, whether you think it, hear it, speak it, write it, read it, you know, the brain can digest it differently through those different mechanisms. Um, it's interesting. I have, and just to be completely, you know, frank with you, I have 
mixed thoughts about happiness being a goal to work towards. And I think, and if this is similar to why I've got some reservations about using joy on this, this model now, because I think that for, for some, um, positive emotion may not be their goal. You know, that that's a very personal choice. Um, and happiness may not be what someone really wants in their life. Um, and so in my work with clients, it's it's so self-directed and we use values as a way to organize our goals. You know, what is it that you're aspiring to? What are the constructs that you want to really inform your living, inform your action? And if you're you're moving in a direction that is congruent with those values, and it's called valued living or or um, you know, congruent living, mm-hmm. then there is a there's a, a piece or a contentment or a settledness or a wholeness that really um, is experienced from that, not necessarily happiness. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It does. Um, I would think, though, that if your actions align with your values, uh, a byproduct of that would be happiness or or at least contentment, you know, Mm -hmm. some some form of happiness. of feeling okay with the things, with the way things are. And, and I can see your point with, um, having happiness as a goal because, um, happiness is elusive and, you know, you, you accomplish a goal and you think it's going to make you happy and then you you accomplish it and then it's on to the next one. And so Mm -hmm. if you're always chasing happiness, then that leads you, leaves you rather in a, a state of craving and, and um, leaves you inherently, I would say, suffering because mm-hmm. because happiness is like the mirage on in the desert, right? You yeah, yeah. Always chasing it. So I like that. I like um, mm-hmm. valued living, and that that would lead to contentment. So mm-hmm. uh, we've talked now about all of the phases and you must have a very large bathroom mirror i'm envious because (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of writing to put on a bathroom mirror um are are these phases a cycle Uh, because the diagram that you drew drew kind of showed it as a cycle or mm-hmm. uh, or a, line, a linear progression of sorts, or are they independent stages that can arise in silos out you know out of order? Oh, yeah, I would say the latter of that of what you just proposed would be true. Um, I definitely don't think this is linear, and I don't think this is um, exhaustive. And there could be other things that have emerged consistently. Um, as a theme through this year, but I think these individually can, you can identify with them. They can resonate. Um, when I, when I first contemplated this, you know, I kind of posed it out there. Like, are you guys seeing this cycle and are we going to stay on this wheel, um, continuing with these same themes or other themes going to emerge? Um, and some of them have seemed to stick longer than the others, like the fatigue, like the, I'm so over it. I don't want to do this, but I am doing this. And those have, have really stood out to me more recently. Um, but yeah, great question. It's for sure. I could see it being, being a cycle, but also each of them standing alone in their own silos. I see. 
And, and you've kind of answered this question already, but I'll, I'll ask it uh, more pointedly. Y- you see these stages as a therapist in your in your clients and the clientele with with whom you work. Um, but we are all enduring the same traumatic event, you know, the loss mm-hmm. of this assumptive world. Um, not to mention it, many of us have lost friends and colleagues and associates to COVID itself. So we're all enduring these, uh, these, these, these traumatic events. Um, uh, so are, are these phases arising in you as, as the therapist? Yes. <laughs> and that's what, that's really what prompted this for me was, I mean, it, I could have timed it. It was usually the thought would show up like my body hurts or I'm exhausted. I would start thinking it over and over and over. And then the following week I would hear it echoed in my clients or echoed mm. from my, from conversations with my friends. They were saying the things that I hadn't spoken aloud, things that were in my head. And that's what I started to track. I I, I've started predicting. I use myself as a tool a lot of times, you know, to explore cultural events or societal things that are going on that I'm having a reaction to. I take note of that and, and, and evaluate it, unpack it, and then start listening to see if others are experiencing the same thing. Um, and this was the most profound um, event where that had had happened in my in my life as a as a therapist, um, yeah. and just personally. I mean, just to have like glaring in my face, we are literally saying the same thing and experiencing it at the same time. And I was also moved by the just that that spiritual and energetic connection that that we share because of it. Um, and so for myself, really wanting to tap into the resilience, I mean, thinking back to our ancestors and the adversity that they've gone through and what resilience carry them through that, that we've now inherited. Like we can so do this yeah. because look who showed up for us years ago and look what, what we have coursing through our veins now to do this and to do it well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you're in, in many cases, the canary in the cave, so to speak, you're your own guinea pig. Mm-hmm. You get to be yeah. your, your own test subject. Um, and, and with, and you, you alluded to this in your article, but with such, uh, with such a, uh, with such stark similarities, um, they're, I mean, you, you're relating to what your clients are saying, you're experiencing what your clients are saying, um, you talked about the concept of transference. Um, mm-hmm. can you elucidate that, that for us? Um, I, I, I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah. So, um, transference and countertransference are clinical experiences in the, in the therapy relationship. Transference is one my client is engaging with me and experiencing me as if, I am someone else in their life. So maybe they are having feelings towards me um, similarly to how they felt towards their mom. And they start to engage with me in that way. 
Mm-hmm. That, that and they may not be conscious of this. Mm-hmm. Um, countertransference is is the the flip of that, um, and I've experienced it in two ways. So client starts to perceive me and interact with me as if I'm their mom, and then I can take on that role and engage that mom kind of experience and encounter the client. And that can be um, a useful tool. It can be a useful tool. Yep. Okay. So that could be a countertransference. I've also stretched it, and I'd have to read about this to see if this is, you know, appropriate um, in the in the language of countertransference. But I also think there's a flip where I encounter the client as someone else in my life. Mm-hmm. So this client's really rubbing me wrong or pushing my buttons because perhaps they feel like you know, my brother did when he annoyed me when I was 12. <laughs> so, and I start engaging with them or reacting to them in that vein and, and stepping out of my therapist hat. That could be, that's also countertransference. I see. I see. And, and so what do you do to prevent the uh, harmful countertransference? Yeah. So specific to the pandemic, what was helpful and sustainable for me, because I was, I was seeing myself in my client's shoes. Like I I was my client in Mm -hmm. so many of those sessions. And so it was just this interesting experience of the counter transference being with myself. My client is me and I'm engaging with me and I'm hearing things that I don't like, and it's increasing my discomfort. And I found that I was becoming far more disclosing or verbally expressive in my work, Hmm. which I think my clients probably felt immensely validated by, and Mm -hmm. they probably got to see me or parts of the genuine me that they'd not seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was somewhat uncontainable. And that's risky because, you know, I have a great rapport with my clients and and they, they would be able to show that back to me like, whoa, never heard you say that before or never <laughs> experienced you quite like this before. And we could, we could talk about that and unpack that, but, but that might not have landed well for everyone, you know, seeing me in that more heightened state. Right. And so what, what was impactful was for me to, to engage this intellectually, to study it, to talk about it, to teach from it, you know, and, and it, it removed some of that intensity for me. I gave it a voice. Um, I remember processing things. I, I participate in several consultation groups that I run um, for other practice owners and colleagues in the area. And, and we talk about these things, you know, having a safe space to really share, here's where I'm struggling or here's what's coming up in my work. What do I do? And you just get perspective outside of your own head, you know, your own experience. Mm-hmm. I find that to be very helpful, keeping me fresh and um, in, in ethical, competent practice. Well, good work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and work is probably the word, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, this emotional work that, that we all have to do. It's, you know, there aren't any shovels or pickaxes involved, but sometimes <laughs> I wish there were because that's, that's a lot easier than, <laughs> than mm-hmm. the work we're talking about here. Um, let, one, I, I, I really appreciated those, those stages and, and, um, and, and labeling, at least for me, is a very helpful tool to know mm-hmm. that, okay, this is a normal thing that I'm experiencing. This is, mm-hmm. this is a stage that a lot of people are in. And, and just to know that it, it helps me know that, okay, 
this is uh, how you're responding is is normal and appropriate and there are tools there's work uh, that you can do to uh, alleviate the suffering uh, that these these stages create um, switching directions I, I know your time is valuable so we'll wrap up shortly here but uh, I do want to touch on one thing um, one of your specialties um, probably in your consulting and and with your clients I'd imagine as well is burnout prevention um, mm-hmm. is 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 this part of your practice on the rise with the pandemic are we seeing more and more burnout Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I would say yes, with a question mark. Um, in that, I think I think the, the pandemic and the impact that it's had on people really kind of digging in deep, like exploring purpose and meaning, or having existential, you know, conversations with themselves and with others. I think they are having to face that that question. You know, it, it, am I am is this just stress for me, or has going through this past year brought me to a place of burnout? Am I am I just done, and do I need to shift gears for myself? Um, I've heard many stories just in our local area of educators, you know, leaving their positions mm-hmm. um, in the schools, and I could assume that that that's because of burnout or um, one of the other many, you know, experiences we encounter as professionals when we're serving others. Um, and in my sustainability research and training, we talk about a lot of those key concepts, but burnout's probably the more common pop culture um, and relatable phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I, I would say yes with a question mark, and that's, <laughs> that's something <laughs> to explore further. Okay. I mean, selfishly, you know, I don't, I don't want my colleagues to burn out and switch gears. I want them to acknowledge now that if you're struggling, let's talk about that and let's get some really great resources in place to shift your gears, maybe go, maybe shift down for the next year or two, but don't, don't flee altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I don't even, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but my side hustle is doing um, training in provider sustainability, like you're bringing up and, um, so a colleague of mine, she and I developed a program on this very topic and we traveled the state and attend conferences to speak on, um, burnout prevention and debunking the stigma and challenging individual and organizational responsibility around burnout prevention or burnout management when it is in fact happening for, for certain employees or for your entire team, because both have been researched. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot that can be done um, even as employers, individuals or employers start to think now as we approach hopefully this year an end to, to some of this pandemic, you know, more, more entry into, into the, the public, public sector that we're out and about again. I think employers need to recognize that their, their people are still going to be struggling. There's going to be a, like a, a system crash. We've been on crisis mode and adrenaline's been pumping. And when that shifts again and we can enter a new status quo of social engagement without the restrictions, I think people are going to feel sick for a while after they're able to do that. Hmm. And so it's an opportunity to plan ahead and think, 
what do my people need? Like, how can I really take care of them, give them more, adjust the resources, create new resources to really attend to those symptoms so that we're, we're inviting an opportunity for wellness and growth rather than, um, you know, withdrawal and retreat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I have lots of thoughts about that. So yeah, we'll see. Yes. With a question mark. If we were texting, <laughs> that's what it would say. And then, <laughs> yeah. then it'd be like a little emoji with the hands up in there. <laughs> yes, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, so what was I going to ask? Um, oh, you, you raised a point and I, and I don't know if you, uh, meant to or not, but what, what clicked in my head is these stages, that we're that we're all experiencing now uh, as a result of uh, just this immediate pivot, they could very well uh, regurgitate themselves and arise when we re re-enter uh, some semblance of normalcy because um, for for the very same reason it might yes. we might pivot back into a world where now we're expected to show up at an office from nine to five yep. and, and now, uh, and we've grown used to seeing our kids uh, all day long and, mm-hmm. and, all, and, and all of a sudden we have to go back to how it was and we could very well, um, experience these very same stages. And yes. so, um, learning from learning from these, uh, from, from what's been happening, these themes, um, can help prepare us for the re-entry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, how fascinating because I haven't, I haven't even thought about re-entry as another uh, potentially uh, harmful or an, a, another event that could potentially cause suffering. I've, I've always just thought of that as the light at the end of the tunnel. But it, it can create its own problems, right? It can, yeah. One of the the models that that we teach from in the sustainability work is Virginia Satir's change model, and she talks about that very thing that you know you get accustomed to a status quo, and then you have a foreign element enter the field, and so that's going to be reentry because now what our status quo is is being distanced. Yeah. And so we're going to be allowed, the restrictions are going to be removed and we can go back out and that may be gradual for some and impulsive for others. And that's going to trigger automatically this resistance Yeah, because we're not used to it. And with resistance come symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that happening. I, I mean, it, it was, I mean, a year and a half ago, I wore a suit and tie to work every day because I mm-hmm. saw clients every day. Mm-hmm. And now everything I do is telephonic. And so yep. I don't think I've tucked my shirt in for a year. You know, I come to, <laughs> I come to work in golf clothes and, yeah. and, and, and that's fine because I'm not interacting with people face to face. I've given, I've given presentations to, uh, I mean, hundreds of people, mm-hmm. uh, zoom presentations. Now I've given a handful of these over the course of the pandemic, but one in particular, I was uh, I was on a family vacation at the beach. This is back in June, and I ran in and I th- I had my trunks on, um, but I threw a shirt and tie on top and gave my presentation, and then you know took it off and ran back to the beach. Um, that and that I'm, yep. I'm gonna miss that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I agree. There's gonna be things that I've gotten quite comfortable with that I will. I will miss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Um, have you faced burnout in your own career? Oh, yes. I went through um, severe burnout several years ago. So before I started my current practice, Tide, back in 2017, I was a partner of, a, of another group, another agency um, for many years. And I, I suffered from extreme burnout as I was doing that work, coming to the realization that the direction I was moving in professionally was not for me. It wasn't what I was about. Mm-hmm. And, and before I knew that was my truth, I, I was feeling it in my body. I was feeling the resistance, but I didn't know that's what that resistance was because I wasn't pa- pausing and tuning in and asking myself, you know, what's your body telling you? So mm-hmm. I just kept forcing myself in this direction for years and I got real sick. Um, like had a lot of GI distress. I had between strep throat and laryngitis, I had six consecutive months of those infections and antibiotics. I mean, real sick because I was not listening to my body and letting myself speak my truth. Mm. And so when I shifted gears and got out of that, that partnership and out onto my own and solo practice, then, then I decided to go to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I waited probably 10 years too long. Um, but I finally did. And I got into the work and began to heal. Um, and it took, it took a good two years to really feel like I was in the lane of recovery. Why do we wait so long to take care of our emotional health? It's like, there's nothing wrong with going to the gym. You can be out of shape Mm -hmm. and go to the gym and everybody applauds you for it. But if you go and try to get emotional help or psychological help, then, you know, immediately you label yourself or you feel like people, and I'm making a generalization here, not everybody's like this, but generally speaking, there's a stigma associated mm-hmm. with, with seeing people like you, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a, absolutely. I, I bet you that you have clients that, you know, that, that maybe one or two people know that they see you, they, you know, it's not, yep. it's not a, a broadcasted thing. I'm going to therapy, you know, it's, right. it's, we're, we're not there yet, but, but we need to be because mm-hmm. I feel like my kids could benefit from therapy but mm-hmm. they don't want to go because they don't want their friends to know that they have to go to therapy because mm-hmm. that means that there's something wrong with them. And guess what? There is, there's something wrong with everybody. And, <laughs> and, and that's why we, that's why there are people like you to help us. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, uh, you, 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 you talked about, uh, you talked about what you did to recover from the burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, what about burnout prevention? Um, is, are there preventative measures that we can take? And, and just in the, in the interest of, um, of respecting your time, let me ask, let me ask you a more, uh, a more specific question for healthcare, uh, professionals, uh, mm-hmm. cause that's the, probably the vast majority of, of my listeners. Um, what do you suggest for burnout prevention? Um, First and foremost, start talking about it. So one of the things to debunking the stigmas and the myths around um, burnout or therapy or getting help, whatever all that is, to debunk the stigmas around that, you have to invite language around it and and establish common language in in discussing these things. And so whether it's it's in your circle of closest friends personally or your circle of work, your work tribe or 
the the organization at large, I think we have a responsibility to to know the truth about burnout, that this is becoming an epidemic among healthcare. Mm-hmm. And that I know d- different disciplines within healthcare are really struggling with sick and unwell professionals. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say that very loosely, but you know, burnout is a sickness. It's a, it's a, you know, the symptoms of being unwell. Yeah. Um, and so talking about it, building in um, intentional resources, if it's within the organization, what are the intentional resources designed to, to get people help or, or support? It doesn't even have to be help. Just what are the supportive resources we're using to, to promote sustainable practice? Like, are your employees aware that they have benefits to address mental health or emotional health? You know, a lot of plans have EAP mm-hmm. benefits and are they aware and are they talking about that? Or is your organization doing programming for your, your employees around these topics? And just making it okay and then keeping that language fresh and consistent among the team. The reality of the work is that it's always going to be triggering. You know, that we can very easily get sick from just doing the work that we're doing because this work, it's hard. It, it carries the energy of, of traumatic stress in the clients or the patients that we serve. And there's a contagion experience mm. when we're not being responsible with that. And so employee healthcare workers need to know about that, you know, how susceptible they are to the energy of their, their service, you know, what they're catching in return from that service. Yeah. And there's lots of key concepts that, you know, certainly we won't get into today about that, but it's all in the line of professional wellness and how to appropriately manage those, those symptoms when they start to show up. Um, I also think, so in addition to talking about it, creating that language in the organization, uh, I think being very intentional in your relationships, um, who, who is allowed to be in your circle of peers, who's allowed to sit at your table and what is the, the experience of energy within that relationship? Is it truly, you know, restoring you, charging you, creating feel goodness. I don't care what you call it, but is it pleasant? You know, is it something <laughs> that's really useful to you? Because if it's not, if there's no reward or if it's worse and it's toxic and contaminating to you, then you need to cut that out. You know, really being, being cherry picking the mm. people that, that we keep in our life is essential to sustainable practice. And that was the first thing that I did without, you know, doing any research around it. Um, When I realized how unwell I was and I was starting to speak it aloud, I honed in on my relationships and I quickly changed my um, professional relationships, my professional network. And I started engaging with those who Gave, who, who reciprocated positive energy that filled me up, gave me hope, you know, helped me see the possibilities. Hmm. And it was paramount. It was paramount. That's wonderful. Thank you for that advice. That's, that's great advice. Um, burnout, burnout is a real thing. Um, burnout, uh, I experienced burnout myself and, and that, that, uh, that really led, led me to starting this podcast. Mm. Um, I, I don't think burnout means you necessarily have to run away from your job. Like you said, you have to flee the, the, the industry or the profession, but you do have to change the way that you show up 
to your mm-hmm. job. You have to change the lens through which you through which you work. And mm-hmm. and and so I I've found ways to make what I do interesting. And mm-hmm. um and I was able to keep my job. You know, it was mm-hmm. either it was either quit my job, give up my income and mm-hmm. maintain my sanity or keep my job keep my income and uh, find a different way to do that job. Mm-hmm. And, and so many of the changes can be just subtle, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I write probably a hundred emails a day and um, just something as simple as, as, you know, taking one extra second to write a sen- a personal sentence, you know, ask about a family member or tell them, tell them that I appreciate them just that subtle change um, can change everything. You know, mm-hmm. it, it comes, it, it transforms hammering an email out into a moment of connection. You know? Connection. That's your value showing up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have uh, learned a lot over the course of the last hour and a half talking with you, and I can't wait to share this with, uh, with my listeners. Um, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, before before we go, is there anything that I that I missed? Is there anything that I should have asked? Any last words of wisdom that you'd care to impart? Um, no, take a snow day. I don't. I mean, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it was great. I really enjoyed you and our time together. This was great. Yeah, I did too. And and maybe I can have you back sometime, and we can yeah. talk more about. Uh, about burnout because I, I would I'd love to hear your perspective on that. You have a, you have quite a bit of insight. So awesome. So the invitation is is there. Um, thank you so much, and um, I hope to talk to you down the road. Sounds like a plan. Take care, Tyler. All right, Ashley. Be well. You've been listening to the Well Beings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.